Hey, what up? Hello, everybody. Alex Kapitko here, centered from Reality Podcast. It is Thursday, November 30th, last day of November. Jesus Christ, it feels like yesterday I was talking about how, oh, we got a third left in November. We got half a November left. Do I hear a quarter left? And now it's one day. Actually, less than a day. So anyways, Thursday night, good God, I, I went on my typical lunch run and about halfway through, so about three and a half miles through, oh my God, my knee just seized up. I don't know if it was cold or it's just kind of tired and sore, but anyways, that second half of the run, I had to start my inner monologue sounding like David Goggins, you know, who's going to carry the boats and the logs? You don't know me, son, type of thing. <laughs> I really had to dig deep internally on that one. Um, bought myself a good sandwich though afterwards, so it was all worth it in the end, but Yeah, haven't had that much um, knee issues in a while, so a little bit concerning, but probably will take tomorrow off and hopefully be back and good for the weekend. But anyways, uh, other than that, we have the Ron DeSantis or the Rob DeSantis versus Gavin Newsom debate tonight. Basically, the Florida versus California, the biggest red state versus the biggest blue state should be interesting. Probably as soon as I'm done recording this, I'm going to watch it. I recorded it. I'm going to take some notes, probably talk about it tomorrow, if it's worth it. I, You know, weirdly enough, I give Sean Hannity more credit maybe than he deserves, but I do actually like that he has a good enough rapport with Gavin Newsom to keep bringing him on. Like, you don't see Gavin Newsom going on Jesse Waters or back on Tucker Carlson or on Laura Ingraham, Laura Ingram, of course, but you do see him go on... Sean Hannity's show quite frequently. They actually have debates and they seem cordial at least with each other. And I kind of actually respect that. I feel like Sean Hannity, total propagandist, not the smartest guy on TV by any means. He easily gets dismantled usually when they debate and when Newsom comes on because Hannity kind of runs off of RNC talking points and Newsom does his homework when he comes on. I've talked about that in the past, but It'll be interesting to see. I'm just curious if Rob DeSanctis can actually keep up with him. And I know I'm sounding biased towards Gavin Newsom here. I just think Gavin Newsom's a better politician than Rob DeSanctis, to be completely honest. I am actually not a big Gavin Newsom fan. I think uh, he is too focused on national politics and not enough on some of California's issues. I also think he just really wants to be president. And California has a lot of issues that have gone unaddressed. So I am not a big Gavin Newsom fan. Also, I just find it funny that him and Donald Trump Jr. um, shared a wife. What I mean, let me rephrase. He dated Kimberly Guilfoyle, who now is, what, engaged or married to Donald Trump Jr. She's really gone on a journey, and it's just kind of interesting to think that she was once married to him, right, who is the, who was, I, I think he was the mayor of San Francisco at the time, and now she's with Donald Trump's son, and she's gone, you know, the best is yet to come. So anyways, moving on, though, a lot to talk about, as always. I, it, sometimes it's hard to actually pick what to talk about. But anyways, I want to start with actually a TikTok trend, which this is probably the one and only time you're going to hear me starting the show with a TikTok trend. I'm going to play it. You guys have probably heard it or seen it if you're on Instagram or TikTok. And this is Gail Lewis signing off at a Walmart in Illinois. And it's amazing. It actually makes me just feel good and warm inside, which... Usually those are not adjectives I use when talking about TikTok, but here we are. So I'm going to play it, then I'll just give some thoughts on why. I think Gail Lewis is the celebrity viral sensation that we need right now. Attention Walmart, this is Gail Lewis, 10-year associate, Morris, Illinois, 
And I just, first off, have to say, I, I just love this for so many reasons. There's been a lot of fan-created TikToks. Now, I don't have TikTok. I plan on never having TikTok, but I do have Instagram. And as I've said time and time again, the reels on Instagram, you know, they come about a week after the, after TikTok. So I, I do see the same stuff. And basically, I like this because she's signing off like this is the end of her police career or her firefighting career or, you know, a service member. And... I don't know. I just love it. And actually, a lot of the videos TikTokers have put out that have also gone viral, they're not negative. They're they're just kind of making a fun, positive, bittersweet joke about it. And it's one of the only positive things I've probably seen on the internet or in the news in quite some time. And there's some really damn funny ones. There's some funny memes like her her um, on Iwo Jima, that type of stuff. I, I just I just think it's great. And we don't know much about Gail Lewis. In a minute, I'll play the rest of the video where she gives this emotional response, and it's kind of heartfelt. But what we do know is that <clears throat> she got a better job. She loved her 10 years at Walmart. It sounds like she was really part of the team, really fought for the customers and all this stuff, but she started this new job and loves the work. The New York Post writes, she denied to disclose her new employer due to the amount of attention she's gotten from the video, which makes complete sense to me. But what I love is that she's not feeling like people are making fun of her or this has gone too far. She told um, NBC Chicago that the reaction has been a dream. She said more words really can't describe my gratitude. It almost feels like a dream. I would never get guess that this would get this kind of attention, she said. I think, honestly, it's a really pretty clever video, pretty funny. The memes are endless, and it's pretty quotable. So good job, Gail. Um, I don't know if you have a production team or if you just decided to do this, but kind of genius, kind of genius. Anyways, let's listen to basically once she gets into her car after she made this signing off announcement. I think it gets into more of why she's a little bit sad to leave. Of an era for me. What you just saw was me signing out for the last time at my Walmart that I have worked at for 10 years. It's a happy sad because I'm going to be going to a better job. And <coughs> those people became like family. I've been through a lot with them. They watched my back. I watched theirs. They helped me out. I helped them out. We even went through a f pandemic together. It just hurts, but it's a happy sad. Because where I'm going, I'm going to be better off where I'm at. That's all. Okay, so first and foremost, I just have to say the main thing that comes to my head, which is that I wonder if she's leaving this job because Walmart notoriously does not pay its employees very well. That's, that's where my head first off goes. And it does sound like she's found a better position. And I just, I just wonder if, say, pay was equal at both places, would she have stayed at Walmart? Who knows? I've seen some Instagram videos or maybe it was a YouTube video that said she w went to work at a hospital. That'd be cool. I'm sure a better gig. But yeah, Walmart notoriously doesn't take care of its employees. So I think there's more of a meta conversation about it's hard to maintain good talent when you don't really take care of the talent. And that's the same with organizations, private organizations, public organizations, nonprofits, anything. Like you do need to value your employees if you want them to stay. And having good human resource development is crucial. And I don't know if Walmart's really been ever good at that unless you're at the very top. So I wonder if that's why Gail left. The other thing I would say is that I think it, I think a lot of going to the workplace 
is about meaning and purpose. I'm not saying for everyone, but I think that no matter what the job is, if you can at least find community and meaning with your coworkers, you know, connect during a pandemic, go through hardship together, laugh, gossip together. I think all of this is healthy and part of what makes makes society run. And one of my favorite comedians, Tim Dillon, actually, I recommend checking it out. I think it's his most recent podcast or YouTube video, whatever you want to call it. But he does a whole rant about how COVID has killed, you know, the office, basically, and commercial real estate is collapsing. And now coworkers are just stuck at home on their couch or in their makeshift office eating too much and not connecting with people at work. And he just does a hilarious rant about how a lot of people kind of need that fulfillment. Not everyone, but a lot of people. And so, I don't know, this all kind of relates to me in a sense. And I will say this makes me feel better. I was watching a John Oliver episode last week about Dollar Tree and Dollar General and just how bad it is. I also recommend checking that out. I mean, they have like one employee in the entire store who has to do stocking and pretty much security and checkout. And it's just a shit show. And there's videos of even customers helping put stuff into the shelves and stocking the fridge and rats and just, you know, robberies, stores closing down, low pay. So I guess, I mean, it's good to see Gail's not suffering that much at least. But anyways, I I just feel like there's something very bittersweet and warm about this. And I've seen the video so many times and it really hasn't got old yet. I don't know why I wanted to start with this. I guess it's kind of a cultural a pop culture moment, you could say, in the United States. And I don't know. It's something a little bit different in these dark times. This is something online on social media that actually made me go, huh, this is kind of funny and kind of sweet. And speaking of funny and sweet, we are moving on. And the next one is not funny, nor sweet, nor positive. But hey, I wanted to give you guys a little fluff before we just go off a cliff here. So anyways, Henry Kissinger died yesterday at the age of 100. So no spring chicken. But he's a guy who's been pretty prevalent for all of my life and a good portion of the 20th century into the 21st century. I mean, this is a guy who was still writing op-eds in The Economist back, I think it was back in the spring. This is a guy who met with practically every president I can think of, including Donald Trump. This is a guy who has been vocal about what's going on in Ukraine. This is a sharp guy. And he, I guess he died at home at 100 He's a fascinating guy, very smart and and obviously very controversial as most of these people are. But I mean, I wanted to first say that he fled Nazi Germany, but I forgot he was born in 1923. So he actually fled like Weimar Germany from what I would understand it to be at the time. He was a Jewish refugee. Okay, sorry. So he, yeah, he was born in Weimar Germany, but fled Germany in 1938, Jewish refugee family, but ends up going to Harvard, studied political science. Gets his Master of Arts and his Doctor of Philosophy at Harvard. Became an academic at Harvard before going into government. And, you know, I, I as I've talked about, most of my studies in undergrad and grad school have been in kind of the foreign policy slash public policy realm. And pretty much all of my professors I know in undergrad back in the day would always talk about him probably being the greatest diplomat of all time. And that's a loaded term. Some people call him a war criminal. Others call him complacent in shaping the new world order. Some call him kind of the guy who helped create the divisions we see today. Some say he was instrumental in the Cold War, blah, blah, blah. He was too soft on China. You can go down the road. You can say he was responsible in propping up authoritarian regimes like Pinochet in Chile. We can go on and on and on. But 
he's considered by scholars to be a very effective Secretary of State. Obviously condemned for turning a blind eye to war crimes, which I'll get to, but also people think he was not only pragmatic, but was actually somewhat idealistic about understanding that countries are different and you have to you have to kind of take a cultural respect to understanding why maybe you do need to be somewhat cooperative with China instead of heavy-handed. Maybe you do need to understand that countries have different views and there's different regions and spheres of influence around the world that sometimes you have to stay out of. And he did help negotiate a ceasefire in the Vietnam War. And for that, he, re- he received um, the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> a lot of people were not too thrilled about that. But his um, approach to politics, very pragmatic, um, real politic is what um, you guys, I'm sure, have heard that before. But basically, it's the approach of conducting diplomatic policies based on considering the circumstances and factors rather than maybe your own ethical premises or your own ideological compass. And I, in a sense, I would say that this is probably his downfall and his strength because sometimes that means you end up supporting the coup that killed Allende in Chile and leads to Pinochet, Pinochet's dictatorship, right? And because he saw this as a complicated situation, but the United States supported the right-wing, more capitalist Pinochet military dictatorship over the more left socialist Allende government. And so sometimes pragmatism can turn into ignoring morality and instead looking at the factors that are better for your own country and so real politic good and bad in a sense but you could just call it realism in a sense or pursuing pragmatic policies anyways other people george f kennan um <laughs> otto von bismarck Brzezinski, uh, who was later on. These are some other people. Charles de Gaulle. These are other people that are considered proponents of real politique. And yeah, I mean, this is a really fascinating guy. Now, I, I think there's probably like three main criticisms that I, I read about him constantly. Well, there's many more, but basically we've, we've received more and more released documents about what was happening in Cambodia I'll get into the details in a minute, but basically there were a lot of secret bombings and thousands and thousands of Cambodians died without a lot of public knowledge until later on. Anthony Bourdain was quoted as saying, Cambodia is still fucked up because of what Henry Kissinger did there. I'm, I'm not quoting that directly, but it was something to that effect. And there's, there's a pretty good Atlantic article that came out, I guess, what, less than 24 hours ago. It's by Gary Bass, and it's called The People Who Didn't Matter to Henry Kiss, uh, Kissinger. And he kind of agrees with some of the things that I've already talked about, where he's known for his insights and his pragmatism and establishing relations with communist China and trying to do it kind of slowly and lukewarm. But the article talks about how A lot of his noteworthy actions are also about his callousness towards the most helpless people in the world. The article writes, How many of his eulogists will grapple with his full record in Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Bangladesh, Chile, Argentina, East Timor, Cyprus, and elsewhere? And, I mean, it's a valid point. It's really not something I can totally argue with. And I will say, generally speaking, that I think he's less controversial and more complicated because... This is a guy who talked about pragmatism and realism and helping people, but then he seemed to 
want to allow coexistence, but then also openly supported coups and liberal organizations and turned a blind eye to human rights when it was better. And again, as I've said, I think that's one of the blind spots of this form of pragmatism. But anyways, basically the big one people talk about is that he came to endorse a secret ground invasion of Cambodia, which began in 1970 in May. And basically in December after Nixon complained that aerial bombardment had been inadequate, uh, Kissinger passed along an order for a massive bombing campaign in Cambodia, which just ignored the distinction between civilian and military targets. And Kissinger said in quotes, anything that flies on anything that moves. Got that. And <laughs> I mean, there's some parallels, I guess you could say, to what's happening in the Middle East right now. But anyways, we're just learning more and more about the amount of indiscriminate killing that happened during that period. And then we have to remember that it didn't actually go very well in Cambodia because by 1975, you have the Khmer Rouge come over, or not come over, but take over power in Cambodia. And this was kind of, I think, a reaction to the government that the United States propped up in Cambodia, which was right-wing and nationalist, and of course, seen as an ally of the United States. So instead, you get this extremely Marxist, genocidal Khmer Rouge come to power. And... I don't know if you guys are too familiar with the Khmer Rouge and Pol Pot, who was the leader, but they, they kind of did this forced agrarianism where they would take people out of cities and force them to work on farms. Like they, they wanted to completely transform society and collectivize it. And of course, when you use the state to do something like that, it leads to radicalism, death, camps, radical oppression of free speech, strict one-party rule, rejection of urban civilization, and that leads to people suffering and just years of brutality. And I think the Khmer Rouge is one of the less talked about genocidal moments in, over the last hundred years, for sure. And I would argue that the United States' reaction in Cambodia at the time helped the civil war really begin, which eventually led to the Khmer Rouge taking power. And also, about that same time, 1971, you also had massacres in Bangladesh where Kissinger, as Secretary of State, turns a blind eye. And on the old podcast, I believe Drew and I actually talked about this, but a little recap is that Bangladesh used to be eastern Pakistan, and Pakistan was a client state of the United States during the Cold War because it was an enemy of India. And of course, the Cold War, literally the guiding mantra was, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And Pakistan obviously was created by carving Muslim areas out of the former British India. And East Pakistan, though, was predominantly Bengali. And basically, 75 million people in it resented the Punjabi elites and the military dictatorship that was like a thousand miles away in West Pakistan. So... Basically, you have Bengali nationalists winning democratic elections and a crisis begins and basically Pakistan's central government and its military junta launches a bloody crackdown on Bengalis. And basically, they were shooting people into submission, which seems to happen time and time again in these junta nationalist type of societies. And basically, Kissinger's statements and his staff told him it was a reign of terror but the criticism towards him and the nixon administration is that basically they had a lot of influence over pakistan giving them arms and support 
and they really didn't condemn the actions. And the forces, you know, brutalized this Hindu minority. And you had a you had a gentleman that this Atlantic article talks about, Kenneth Keating, who was the U.S. ambassador to India, and he warned Kissinger to his face in quotes, "It is almost entirely a matter of genocide killing the Hindus," but they didn't really do quite enough. And I think this reflects that his real politique, in a sense, was also just kind of a sense of like laissez-faire, laissez yeah, just laissez-faire approach to foreign policy, which sometimes can be good. But it seems like there was just a Red Scare brainworm that was going on during the Cold War, which was, which I mean, I think both sides of the Cold War were guilty of. But the problem here is that then there's also the Indonesia example. So you have uh, Suharto, who was a powerful Indonesian military leader, and basically he accused the PKI, the Indonesian Communist Party, of trying to do a brutal coup attempt against him in the military dictatorship. And over the months that followed, he exterminated potentially some numbers say close to a million Indonesians for at least the idea of being linked to communism and or being accused of harboring leftist sympathies. And of course, he then takes power and rules as a dictator until 98, which is kind of insane. Like you don't you just don't hear about those type of situations anymore. But of course, the United States supported him because, again, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And this is, you know, Sahardo's bloody purge was horrible, but it was good for the United States' foreign policy goals at the time. And there's a guy, John Rusa, who's an associate professor of history at the University of British Columbia, and he has a book on Indonesia. And he, uh, he told The Atlantic, in quotes, that, uh, that much of the U.S. foreign policy establishment viewed basically Sahardo's victory as a huge flip, a very successful flip that happened very quickly. And I mean, this is tough because this is a diverse country, one of the largest countries in the world. And and it, it's actually interesting because even though the United States and our foreign policy, in a sense, stood by, that's actually not totally correct because it, at times you actually saw the United States backing armed rebellions against the Sukarno government and to me, it just seems like the United States was just trying to help pick who was the best and who was the most likely to be the best in our interests. And so that's why I, I take issue once in a while with this kind of laissez-faire or, or his like hands-off approach because it seems very selective. And the reason why I say that is then you have to look at what happened in Chile. And I, I've always been really fascinated with the fall of Allende and the rise of Pinochet. And the United States also was basically a pretty close ally of Pinochet. And now I, I could probably do a whole episode on the Chicago Boys. Basically, this is a group of Chilean economists that kind of came to power in the 1970s. And they were educated at the University of Chicago under Milton Friedman and Arnold Harbinger. And these are kind of neoconservative neoliberal economists that talk about basically the idea of shock doctrine along with laissez-faire economics. I mean, this is the stuff, you know, that Friedman's known for, like free trade agreements, breakdown of trade barriers. These were helped, in this case, to help promote Chile's competition in the world market. You talk about the privatization of public companies, free market, low taxes, all of that fun stuff. Also looking at the neoliberal economic viewpoint, such as the World Bank, the IMF, 
loans, bailouts, trying to put countries onto a globalized market, even if they're not ready, putting them in debt traps. I could, I, I probably should do an episode on this. Maybe we'll get into it. But it's basically the ideology of free market capitalism, laissez-faire economics. But the interesting thing is, is Pinochet's version, once he gets into power, Allende is shot. He locks up communist supporters. Kind of a similar, not quite as bad, but a similar trend that we see in other parts is where the United States props up kind of a far-right military leader because he's anti-communism, and then he, you know, rules with an iron fist. But basically, they also then adopted, like, the American free market neoliberal approach, which, by the way, I agree with a lot of it, but not in this case, because shock doctrine and the economic policies that follow basically get into the idea of laissez-faire economics, but a strong military government and political control. And so the contradictions, of course, are very prevalent. And the problem here is that Kissinger... So you have, a, you have a Yende who is democratically elected. He is shot and killed. And they lock up basically communism. There's a red scare. You, you, you know, you're, you're locking up leftists and Pinochet rules until the yes-no vote, which eventually happens later on. But long story short, the United States is basically very complacent in Pinochet's power. And I have friends that lived in Chile and they just always talk about how that's still such a bit like a point of distrust and distaste towards the United States to this day. And, of course, Kissinger's government is very influential in accepting Pinochet, working with him, and sending economists down there and training economists because, again, Pinochet was better for the United States. And I think there's actually a lot of parallels between Francisco Franco in, in, Spain, in Spain as well. And we won't get into that today as much, but also, also a guy who was better for trade, better for the United States, but worse for the people. And... I think that seems to be a trend to me is that Kissinger just because of his willingness, I think, to throw out a general guiding morality, he was willing to work in each individual case and look at it. What is the pragmatic, realistic situation that's better for the United States? And sometimes that plays off like China and other times it really, really collapses and backfires like what we see happen in Pakistan, Cambodia, and I would argue also in Chile. Now, now The Economist actually takes kind of a different take, and I usually agree with The Economist. In this case, I'm not totally sure if I do, but I do think it does bring up a few interesting points. First and foremost, it talks about how he was misunderstood. A lot of his opponents and critics talk about how he was a huge supporter of immoral realism, and that's something I probably would say. I don't know if I'd go as far as war criminal. I just think he did support immoral realism. I think that's a good way to put it. But this article does talk about how the world right now is somewhat similar to the world that Kissinger operated in. You know, you have a rivalry, rivalry sorry, between China and America, bitter wars raging, obviously, in Ukraine and Gaza, political division, the rise of illiberal democracies, blah, 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 artificial intelligence, climate change. I mean, probably worse than when he was there. But The Economist has a good little line here, which I am going to read. It writes here, in his later years, Kissinger was often criticized for being soft on China, but his concern was to see off the thinking that portrayed it as a rising power, like the Kaiser's Germany, bent on expansion. China, he countered, saw the rules-based order as America's rules-based order. It wanted room to adjust, not to overturn the system altogether. The article then later writes, drawing on his study of 19th century European diplomacy, he argued that stability required states to tolerate each other's differences. The main threat to peace comes not from realists, he thought, but from zealots 
who are quick to condemn and who demand change over a point of principle. And again, this gets back to what I was talking about, his kind of amoral realism, like the fact that he was willing to throw out morals for pragmatism. And there's pros and cons to that. I would say probably more cons, but we will continue. Because in a sense, The Economist is basically arguing that because of these views and his willingness not to try to force China to change, that was why America and China were able to talk slowly, lukewarm at first, but they did build trust and trade, and obviously their differences on Taiwan happen, but they were able to work together. And I do think that, yeah, he's really into the idea of spheres of influence and letting different actors, you know, coexist and... I guess some could say he was maybe not a globalist and he was more of a regionalist. And I think there are important lessons to be, to, be, to, be, to be gathered from this. But at the end of the day, I can't help but wonder what he would do, say, with Putin annexing Crimea and eventually the war we're seeing there. Because part of me thinks that under a lot of his principles, he would say, well, there's a lot of Russian speakers Crimea has historically been part of the Russian Empire. This is an issue they should figure out. Like, I would not be surprised if that was if that was his stance. Because back to that Atlantic article, it talked about how he was alerted about how the Soviets treated Jews because no one ever really talks about it. But Jews in Soviet Russia were not treated particularly well and were put into camps and targeted, and that's why there was a huge diaspora out out of there to the West by Russian Jews. But, anyways. I guess Kissinger said, well, maybe it's a moral issue, but it's not a United States issue. So I I do wonder if sometimes foreign policy without morality can lead to issues like Pinochet disappearing thousands of Chileans that were viewed as political enemies, or what the Khmer Rouge did in Indonesia, or the bombings of Cambodia, or Hindus getting killed in Pakistan. I think sometimes you do need a moral compass in foreign policy and... His is just a little bit vague, or maybe you could say it's sometimes spinning a little bit out of control. So anyways, I mean, I I, I do think what he did with China, some people say he was too soft on China. I think one of Nixon's biggest accomplishments and one of his biggest accomplishments was was how they handled China. I will will put that up front. Maybe Taiwan can be debatable, but I, I don't really particularly criticize what he did. This is a complicated guy. I mean, I, I've only touched the surface. I mean, this is a guy who was pretty much involved in everything. that's shaped our modern world order. And so also I think he gets a lot more scrutiny than others before and after him. I mean, I I mean, for example, I'm just looking at a list right now. I mean, Condoleezza Rice, obviously, even Colin Powell, a lot of kind of moral ineptitude involving the war in Iraq. Madeleine Albright, great, but some of her actions in the 90s, not awesome. Uh, What's his name? James Baker, George Schultz. Some of these people, Warren Christopher, multiple times, Cyrus Vance. I mean, there are people that have struggled as well. Kenneth Rush, before Henry Kissinger, when he was, I'm guessing, National Security Advisor. To, it's, it's, it's really complicated. And also, at the end of the day, I think a diplomat, especially the chief diplomat, which is the Secretary of State, can only make so many decisions on their own. Sometimes the forces of time and just the political moment... Sometimes when those wheels are turning, it's hard to slow down the car. And I think that's a lot of this as well. But I do think that at the end of the day, Kissinger had a very vague moral compass. And that does show and I think, a lot of these decisions. So interesting stuff. We will move on. And probably tomorrow, I want to talk more about what's going on in Ukraine because 
right now it does seem like Russia is doing better than the Ukrainian military and the Zelensky government. I would say it's probably because I think the Western response is destabilized. You mix in disinformation and just the fact that we are sending them the weapons they need way too late, and Russia's willing to just keep throwing, willing to keep throwing shit at the fan and just see what sticks. And we'll probably talk about that more tomorrow, but there's an interesting story coming out of Finland. I'm going to start with The Economist's little headline here and then get into an AP-associated press article about it. So The Economist writes, Finland shut down its entire border with, border with Russia for two weeks to stop what it claims is an organized attempt by Russia to ferry illegal immigrants across the frontier. The Finnish Prime Minister, Petteri Orpo, described it as Russia's influence operation. So, you know, Elon Musk is talking about great replacement theory and all these anti-Semitic views about how the Jews are, you know, sending in non-white migrants to change things. Well, if you want to talk about a real, like, hybrid warfare operation, the Russians are trying to destabilize Finland by sending more people in to, I guess, change voting dynamics. The AP has a good piece on this. It writes in quotes here, NATO member Finland on Wednesday closed its last remaining border crossing with Russia after the government decided to seal the entire border with its neighbor amid rising political tensions. The article continues, the cabinet of Prime Minister Petteri Orpo decided to temporarily close the border, which is, by the way, 830 miles, over concerns that Moscow was using migrants to destabilize the Nordic country in an alleged act of hybrid warfare. And I guess from my understanding, we have not seen migrants attempting to enter Finland in the Raja Zhupspi border crossing part on Wednesday. Um, but the AP writes here in quotes, Finnish authorities saw some 1,000 migrants without visas or valid documentation arrive at the border since August, with more than 900 in November alone. Finland makes up a significant part of NATO's northeastern flank and acts as the European Union's external border in the north. The article also talks about how the migrants come from countries that are probably not surprising. It's like Afghanistan, Eritrea, Ethiopia, Iraq, Pakistan, Somalia, Syria, Yemen. And the vast majority of them apparently have applied for asylum in Finland once they reach the Finnish side of the border. And Finland thinks that Russia is ushering these migrants to the border zone because the FSB or Russia's Federal Security Service is um, heavily controlling the Russian side of it. So they think it's a little bit weird that all of a sudden there's this huge influx. And I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, my biggest thing is that it, it partially makes sense that Russia would want to do this because Finland became NATO's most recent member, the 31st member back in April of this year, 2023. And Russia's probably fucking pissed about that. And I bet Russia's just like, let's see if we can destabilize this. But but then again, I don't know if sending in a bunch of migrants is really going to, what, get support for Russia. But then I guess if you want to have more of a chaos theory in it, maybe it just makes issues more difficult internally, and then they can do another disinformation warfare campaign. Russia's really good at just throwing everything at the wall and seeing what sticks. And this could just be another one of those fire hose of falsehood. Interesting stuff for sure. Um, the Russian foreign ministry spokesperson, Maria Zakharova, um, said that this is not happening. They've denied it. And Zakharova charged that by closing the border, Finland is hurting its own citizens. Not sure if I get behind that one because I don't really know if there's too many Finnish citizens that are just 
saying, oh my God, I need to get to Russia in December, <laughs> especially that part of Russia in December. But it is interesting to me and it, it would not surprise me. Probably a deeper take I would have is that a lot of these Northern European countries are pretty homogenous. So if you send a bunch of migrants that don't look like the Finnish, don't have the same religion as the Finnish, and they all end up in the country, you could see what's happening in like the Netherlands, for example, where you get a reactionary far right that becomes Islamophobic, anti-immigrant, and quite right-wing as a reaction to this. And I guess if you were Russia, you'd probably be very fine with like a Geert Wilders type of guy coming to power in Finland. Of course, this is long down the road. This isn't going to happen overnight. But usually if you do have an immigrant crisis in a country or too many asylum seekers coming, and if you see a rise in crime, those type of initiatives, then it does lead to a reactionary right. And that would be good for Russia. So maybe they're playing the long game here. Either way, I just found this story kind of interesting. Anyways, we've, we've gone a little long today. Tomorrow, new episode, new topics. Probably going to do a deeper dive into Ukraine because it's been a while. And I should probably touch on what's happening in Israel and what's happening in Gaza because there's a lot to report on. I've just been somewhat quiet on that because I've just kind of been absorbing a lot. I've, obviously, as you guys know, for a long time, I have covered it almost daily. But right now, I'm just taking some steps back and trying to just really think deeply and articulate what I want to say because I think everyone's just spewing bullshit right now, in my opinion. So anyways, you can find me on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean. You guys know the rest, and I'll be back tomorrow. Take care. Attention, United States. This is Alex Kapitko, 10-year student of politics, Truckee, California, 1994. Signing out. Good night.